So everything happened much more quickly. And not only that, they did much more than they did before. So, you know, the, the thing, the way I look at it very generally is the next crisis, they are, because the markets aren't addicted to easy money, they're addicted to ever easier money. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Dixon Buchanan, and I'm joined, as always, by the founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Wiener. We're excited to welcome to our show today, Brian London. Brian has over 40 years of experience in investment markets, and he currently serves as the CEO and president of Jefferson Financial. Brian produces the Gold Newsletter, a publication that goes all the way back to 1971. Again, note that date, where he covers resource stocks, small cap companies, as well as macroeconomic and geopolitical issues. He's also the host of the annual New Orleans Investment Conference one of the oldest and most respected events of its kind. Over the years, the conference has been home to an incredible roster of speakers covering investments, economics, geopolitics, and much more. And when I say incredible roster of speakers, that is no exaggeration. I had this you know, vague idea in my mind that, oh yeah, the, you know, the New Orleans conference, it's, it's had some pretty famous people speak there. But I actually went and looked up the list of historical speakers, and it is truly impressive. As tempted as I am to rattle off a few names, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna steal your thunder, Brian. I'm gonna let you uh, give us the full story and, and drop those names for us. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is a, it is, it's not just an A list, it's an A plus list of people. And it's no wonder the conference enjoys such uh, a good reputation. That's of course, one of the reasons why Monetary Metals will be making its first appearance at the conference this October, which we're all very excited about. So suffice to say, Brian, it's a privilege to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, uh, Dixon. I really appreciate the opportunity. I will correct you. I haven't been in the business 40 years. Uh, it's only 37, um, and I'm <laughs> clinging to that. Uh, that was market, probably marketing copy in my bio that said something like spanning four decades in the business. But, uh, but it, yeah, it's only been 37. But I have the bottom line is I've been around a while and we've been around a while. That's great. That's great. I, I, I may have been rounding up a little there. So apologies for that. But yeah, as I, as I said, we'd love to hear uh, in the show today, we'd love to discuss the, the origins of the conference Yep. Um, as well as have you give our listeners a taste of what they could expect if they were to attend the conference this year. Um, but to kick us off, uh, I'd, love, I'd love for you to start out, if you could just give us a little bit of background, uh, specifically, how was it that you ended up you know, where you are today? How did you find yourself in the gold industry? What was it that, that led you there? Yeah, I personally, I answered an ad uh, for a junior copywriter for Jim Blanchard's old coin and bullion company back in 1985. Uh, but Jim started the conference, started everything about 14 years previous. Uh, when Nixon, when he heard on the radio uh, that Nixon was closing the gold window on August 15th, 1971, 
he uh, he knew that it was going to usher in a, a period of inflation, dollar depreciation, really everything that happened in the 70s. And uh, at the time, it was illegal to own gold. It was like, you know, uh, contraband like heroin or plutonium or anything else. You couldn't own gold. It was illegal. So it was that seems pretty ridiculous today, but it was the state of things back then. So he decided to do something about it and he launched Gold Newsletter as really a tool in lobbying for and advocating for the return of the right of gold ownership. So Jim kind of led an organization called the National Committee for to Legalize Gold uh, and used Gold Newsletter as a part of that back then and was successful in an early 70s or in 1974. They were signed the legislation legalizing gold and he decided to have a conference to basically educate American investors on how to buy gold. And that was the start of what became the New Orleans Investment Conference some 38 years later, I'm sorry, uh, 48 years later. Um, and, uh, and this will be our 48th annual event this year. O over the years, uh, we've had just, a, you know, as you mentioned, like a hall of fame of speakers at the event. We've had Margaret Thatcher, we had Ayn Rand for her, for her final uh, public appearance before she passed. Milton Friedman, a number of times, Alan Greenspan, a number of times. Um, you know, the list, as you said, goes on and on and on of, of luminaries that have spoken at our event. And through, although we cover all of the markets, we are known for, you know, kind of starting off with a geopolitical angle on the markets and then economic angle and then drilling down into all of the asset classes. And though we cover really all of the asset classes, we are known still for being kind of the preeminent conference for covering precious metals, monetary issues, the mining stocks, et cetera. Um, that's been a consistent theme over the decades. And you know, we're, we're known as the granddaddy of investment conferences and one of the few out there that has this long distinguished history of really focusing on those issues. And as a part of it, personal liberty and, and free markets, uh, that will always be a big theme of ours. Um, and we have a big, you know, libertarian streak running through the event. Yeah, there's a strong connection between gold and uh, liberty as, uh, as Alan Greenspan himself would know. And that essay yeah. that you wrote for Ayn Rand back in 1966. Yeah, and I actually had some have had some discussions with Alan Greenspan about that and, and his history and and the situation with the federal debt and everything else. So he is a reformed, uh, you know, an, an unreformed gold bug now. He's back to his old gold bug ways that he abandoned while he was uh, within the heart of darkness, as it were. That, that's incredible. I was just going to add one thing to what you said about Nixon in 1971. So first of all, that um, that pretty little speech of his is on YouTube. Yeah. And for anybody who hasn't seen it, man, I recommend, you know, it's only a minute or whatever it is, where he says, you know, I've directed Secretary Connolly to temporarily, and yeah. use that word temporarily, suspend, you know, uh, redemption or payment of dollars in gold or other reserve assets Blah, 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 blah. But the net effect is if you, you know, if you're not buying your things abroad, then um, that should have no effect on the purchasing power of your dollar. Yeah. And um, that to me is the far greater crime, breaking into a hotel and stealing a few tapes from his competitors, hails in comparison to the monetary crime 
uh, should be called the crime of 71. Yeah, and, and I have some opinions on that that I would love to put, um, you know, past you, uh, Keith, because of your background and your history and knowledge and, and views on the subject. But, you know, one of the things I, I give Nixon credit for a couple of things. I'm a bit kinder than him than a lot of other people. Number one, I think he was correct in calling it temporary. Um, I think it will be reversed. And I think we're in the end game of a process that will probably show it being reversed eventually. That is one of the few options out of it. But, you know, when you, you look at it from Nixon's standpoint, did he really have a lot of options facing, you know, given the fact that De Gaulle was taking all of our gold and, and, uh, and uh, um, uh, Bank of England was taking all of our gold? You know, if you wanted to keep the gold, you had to, to stop that. But he, in my view, he had an option that I think central banks still have today and that he could have simply devalued the dollar, just basically changed the gold price to a more realistic one. Um, and that would have instantly devalued the dollar. The issue, of course, with that is it's all up front and above the table. And everybody sees that you're recognizing that you failed uh, in preserving the value of the dollar. And so, you know, everybody sees it. Whereas this insidious below the table ongoing process of monetary inflation and dollar depreciation is something that happens in the background. And, you know, you can always blame on the guy before you and the guy after you. Um, but when you devalue, you know, it's transparent. You screwed up. <laughs> and, and, uh, but that was an option he could have maintained. And that going forward is the reason why I think you can go back to a tie to gold, at least a partial coverage for the dollar and or other fiat currencies. The issue is that going forward, when you need to devalue, it's obvious, you know, you are devaluing. You know, it's interesting um, you mentioned Nixon could have devalued. The, uh, the story goes that um, the leading, leading Keynesian at the time um, uh, Samuelson had prepared a uh, what was it, an article, an op-ed or whatever for the Washington Post uh, with the headline, you know, Nixon devalues and they were only just waiting for the number to plug in and run the story. And, oh, right. I know that. And um, it was actually Milton Friedman whispering in Nixon's ear to just default entirely, go off the gold standard. Yeah. One of those perversities where the left was just, okay, okay, you know, we'll just make it 70 bucks an ounce or whatever they thought the right number would be. And uh, in the right saying, uh, or the alleged right saying, uh, no, just uh, completely default, it's fine. Dollars that need to be redeemable in gold at all, just sever the link, um, you know, make it so much easier to adjust wages, which are sticky, you know, blah, 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 blah. And of course that's what uh, Nixon did. Um, I have to assume Nixon didn't really understand the implications of it. No. Uh, he's a politician, but I have to assume that Milton Friedman did what should have or would have. Yeah, and you know, as much as I love Milton Friedman and still love his his talent for um, explaining free market principles, the, the whole gold issue was a blind spot with him. In fact, you know, we have an archive of uh, virtually all the recordings of presentations going back to 1974 at our conference. And sitting on my desktop right now is a recording of, of John Exter 
giving a presentation and I've only listened to the first half. We've had to go back and have the cassette tape restored because it broke after we listened to the first half of it. And he was oh, jumping no. into slamming Milton Friedman. And, uh, and I'm thinking, oh, this is gold. This is gold. There may be only six other people out there in the whole world that will appreciate this like I do, but they're going to love this. And, uh, and so literally we just had it restored. to have the entire recording on my desktop. I have to finish listening to it and we're going to release it to the public um, and, and hopefully be able to go back and get some more. I actually have a, beyond that. I have another presentation from Milton Friedman that I have to listen to and, and get ready. That's, that's awesome. Good old Dexter. Yeah. Not, not very many people know him, but those who do, really uh I guess most of the serious people in the gold community would because of exter's pyramid i was about to say this is the same exter of exter's liquidity or yeah liquidity pyramid yeah, heard think, of yeah. Pyramid of and, yeah that's right yeah asset liquidity yeah with, with uh gold at the very with gold yeah, at the very bottom very right. bottom <laughs> um i was gonna say you know friedman maybe i'm uh at risk of, of giving some offense and saying this but you know, Friedman, for all of his, you know, free market bona fides, um, there's a quote from him talking about daylight savings time as an analogy to, um, uh, you know, currency. And he basically says, you know, you might think that everybody could just reset their clock twice a year, you know, if they want to or whatever, but how much more efficient it is to have a master clock. And that's an analogy to, you know, employers and employees could renegotiate wages in a free market, but how much more efficient it is the wages are too high and, and too sticky to just devalue the currency and that solves the problem. And when I first read that, I just wanted to yell at the screen that, wait a minute, what about all the savers who are not employees who need their wages adjusted? You're just adjusting their life savings down by whatever percentage you think wages need to be adjusted down. Do you not think that that's a pretty significant you know, side effect? Like you go to the doctor and say, hey, I have a little acne on my face and it gives you a pill that causes a heart attack. But, you know, at least it, it cures the acne. Is that, you know, maybe a little extreme? Yeah. And, and um, you know, it's interesting when you look through history and God help us, because we're going to be judged at some time, some point too. But you look at these people that are like, you, you look at Milton Friedman's Free to Choose series on PBS and beyond the, the absolute astonishment that PBS would ever air such a thing uh, or that Milton Friedman would get... Um, you know, the Nobel Prize. Um, he was such an eloquent defender of liberty and free markets, but he's also the guy that started payroll tax uh, taxes, and uh, which he admittedly regretted as the big, you know, mistake of his life. But he also did have that blind spot uh, for gold. So everybody's just, you know, a mix of anachronisms and the like. Uh, gold, uh, Greenspan, you know, was one of the most radical libertarians and gold bugs in the 60s. And even when, when he was uh, chair, chairman of the Federal Reserve, he happened to meet Jim Blanchard one time at a Cato uh, dedication of their new building. And he told Jim, he says, you know, I, I really think that's the best stuff I ever wrote. And, um, and then of course, once he got out of power as it were, you know, and came to our conference, and he's talking like the most diehard radical libertarian gold bug again. Um, so, you know, who knows if we were in their same positions, what we would do. But, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm a little more lenient and um, tolerant of people uh, 
you know, in the public eye for that many decades that everybody's at least granted a few mulligans, but the payroll tax deduction, that was a big one. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big, um, not only fan of Lord of the Rings, but I love to use the analogy of the one ring. And for me, that's the analogy for uh, Greenspan. Like he, he got it when you read that 1966 essay. Like, yeah. There it is, almost the definitive statement. Why they don't want you to have gold? Of course, in 1966, it was totally legal for another nine years. Um, and you know what they can do because they've trapped you in their dollar because they've made it illegal to own gold. He totally gets it, and he makes a very eloquent, a very clear case. Then he goes into the Fed. Um, as I understood it, he told Ayn Rand, because they were still friendly at that time, that he's going to go in and try to end it or fix it from within. Yeah. Um, and then somewhere along the way, you know, he's tempted by the one ring, which is power. And, um, you know, he had a, a good run where, you know, every time he would appear in public, everyone called him the maestro and, you know, listened with bated breath. What is he going to say? And, um, you know, that all gets to be pretty heady stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, stroking the ego. By the, the power in the system. He pretty much admitted to that when he spoke at our conference and 2016 that you know he was trying to to fix it from within and if he and it was the job and I guess that's one way to look at it it is the job of the Federal Reserve Chairman to uh, finance the spending of the United States government and so if he were not to do that if he were to just to say no I'm not going to do that then somebody else would be in the job next week and somebody that other person would not at least cling to the remnants of you know the free market or libertarian ideals that that uh, Greenspan did. But if, you know if you're not going to put them to work, then what use is holding those ideals buried, you know, within you if they're if if they're not going to influence how you're acting? You know, I've had people suggest to me, Keith, you should be the you know they should make you the chairman of the Fed, and you know you'd shut it down. And I was like, no, 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 no. If you really want to shut down the Fed, make me the Secretary of the Treasury. And from that role, I could potentially, assuming that was a mandate, do something about the Fed. But from inside the Fed, all you can do is follow the mandate. And if you don't follow the mandate, as you say, they'll just put the next guy in. Yeah. You know, who would. Yeah, the most important you could do thing you could do if they gave you the job of Federal Reserve Chairman is to resign. <laughs> That's yeah. be about it. So, so getting back to Ayn Rand, um, and then I, I want to stop bashing Greenspan, but I, I can't. I can't resist one more good, good whack. Was um, there was you know late late in the book they offered John Galt and Dixon. You should probably close your ears if you're still uh, uh, um, right yeah. now at this very moment. Um, they offered John Galt the uh, the job of economic dictator, mm -hmm. and he refuses. And they're like, no, you have to take the job. You know, tell us what to do. Economic dictator. It's like okay shut it all down and like no 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 you know you can't be serious it's like i am serious and uh that's uh that's the world so um as i understand it through through the objectivist community um jim blanchard offered ayn rand when she was the speaker was that 1981 or 1980 uh 1980 she 81. died in 81 it was 81. she died in 81 and i don't know how close to her death that uh uh, event was weeks um, weeks wow yeah. that they offered her the choice of either first class airfare 
yeah. or a first class, um, you know, uh, train, uh, like a, her own private cabin on a train. And obviously, there's a um, you know symbolic significance to, to railroads, given you know theme of Alice Shrugged. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I imagine if you're elderly and frail, you know, being in a first class train cabin is probably a lot less physical stress than you know flying in airports. Well, and no, you're gonna love this story then, uh, or hate it. Um, actually, Jim obviously was a tremendous Ayn Rand fan and. And after his accident, when he was a teenager, that uh, crippled him, put him in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. It was somebody tossing a copy of the book Anthem on his lap that turned around his life. And, and so he wrote, he really wanted Ayn Rand to, to speak and had tried to get her for a number of years, couldn't convince her. Uh, and he wrote this heartfelt letter talking about his experience, how he named his son Anthem. and. Um, and then offered a uh, private rail car. Uh, one of the conference, longtime conference attendees actually had their own private rail car, luxurious rail car. And he offered that to her as the mode of travel. And she loved trains. So just the romance of being uh, coming down to New Orleans on a train uh, convinced her to accept the offer. And she did. And she spoke. And unfortunately, she didn't really understand the conference that well. She thought it was a conference of business people and not really investors. So she did a speech on the obligations of business people to promote free markets and everything else. But anyway, it worked and it was Ayn Rand. So rousing applause and everything else. And uh, she took the train back, but it was, you know, mid fall or whatever. It was a bit cold outside and the window in her her uh, Pullman car was open on the way up. And we kind of speculate that that's how she caught a cold of which she died from a month later. Oh, yeah. uh, so we actually, speaking at the conference, may have actually killed Ayn Rand, um, you know, in a, in a tragic turn of events. But she was very old at the time. Yeah, no, I, I didn't know that. I think she had cancer too. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure that, you know, there's any one single, mm -hmm. uh, you know, cause of death yeah. um, at that point. So, so fast forward, tell us a little bit about what, you know, was that the pinnacle of the conference that it continued to, uh, to grow? Uh, you got hired in 85. How did you end up coming to, um, I guess, buy it from Blanchard? Yeah, I, uh, I started off as a junior copywriter in 85 and uh, got to become fast friends with Jim. And but um, even, you know, I was 25 years old at the time. And Jim and I on, on a uh, company trip to Washington to uh, lobby for this and that, it was a bunch of company executives, and I got invited along. And uh, along that trip, we got to talking and realized that we were both big fans of Robert Heinlein's uh, science fiction work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was mutual bonding right away. And I had, because of that, developed a lot of libertarian beliefs, but didn't know I was libertarian. You know, I'd never really been exposed that much to whatever kind of structure there is in that, that philosophy. And uh, so getting to know Jim and everybody involved in the conference and his business and the newsletter 
kind of exposed me to that in a much more formalized way. Um, Jim sold his coin company to a hedge fund that was uh, spun out of General Electric in uh, 1988. And they ran the company down. I was by then the head copywriter for the coin company. And uh, they ran the company down in, in, you know, into the ground very quickly. You'll appreciate this. I remember one time I heard a couple of suits walking in the hall and they were wondering what the melt value of a half dime was. And uh, I'm like, these guys are total, total idiots. And uh, so it, it, it was terrible that they, it went from $115 million a year in revenue to, you know, uh, almost closing the doors. So Jim bought the company back on a distress level from the hedge fund in 1990, then sold it back to the people who were managing it, and then took the newsletters and the conference into a new company that he started with me. Um, and, uh, and that was it. We were the two lone employees really at the time. Um, and we started, so I ran his business for the next uh, nine years and he passed away in 1999. And uh, early 2000s, I bought the remaining interest that I didn't already own from the estate. So I've been in it since 85. And uh, sometimes I'm feeling my age, Keith. But uh, especially when you look at what's happening in the gold market these days. So, you know. I was going to say, you, you look young. Yeah, well, I started young. Um, but, you know. There's some mornings where I wake up, my bones creaking. I don't feel that young. I so I, I have to interject because you, you said uh, there was a science fiction writer you mentioned, Robert. Robert Heinlein. Heinlein. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big sci-fi fan. I've never heard of that name. Like, give me the quick. Oh, Robert Heinlein? I mean, maybe maybe I shouldn't say I'm a fan. I'm into sci-fi. Right <laughs> no, not into, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a sci-fi new, but I'm 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 reading everything I can in the genre. He he was known as the dean of science fiction. He wrote *Stranger in a Strange Land*, *The Moon is a Harsh Mistress*, um, *The Notebooks of Lazarus Long*. Actually, um, that wasn't the title, but Lazarus Long was a uh, a character in a number of books. Um, yeah, I, I, I can send you a list or just look up Google a list, but definitely uh, tr I grew up reading his juvenile series um, and, you know, still as a juvenile, got into some of his adult series, which were really eye opening for a kid. I mean, he'd get into a Stranger in a Strange Land, but read uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress first and then Stranger in a Strange Land, and that'll give you a, a great introduction. And you said he he kind of gets into free market principles just in his like world building and and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, he started off writing for the pulps in the 1930s and was actually started off as a liberal, kind of made the uh, not a classical liberal, but um, but made that transition that so many people do over the years and ended up being um, very much a uh, libertarian. Um, in fact, one of the, the books, uh, Starship Troopers, they made the movie out of it. The movie was not really, um, it was only vaguely related to the book. Sure. Um, but it, it was made in, it was a good movie, I thought, but it wasn't the book. It was more of a campy kind of a take on it. 
but that's another one that actually is a bit more uh, neoconservative, I would say, than a lot of his other works. Yeah, because he has this idea that um, the only military service really gives you the full rights of citizenship. Yeah, which actually, I don't know if it was actually military service or any some kind of public service. In other words, you had to, had really no cost to you other than your time or whatever. You had to want the right to vote uh, to earn it. And I don't know that that's actually a bad thing. Certainly yeah. an un unpopular opinion today, but if you go back it, to the founding, I mean, it's not gonna get if you go back to the founding of the United States, though, there were, let's say some, you graduate high school, and if you want the right to vote, you go into some kind of, spend a year in some kind of public service, like, you know, right. Peace Corps, or, you know, Civil Conservation Corps, or something like that, for a year, but you earn the right to, uh, to, to actually vote, if you really care about voting. I mean, you, you look at a lot of these ads, you know, that, that are out there, especially during presidential elections, you know, trying to convince people to vote. I don't want anybody to vote that had to be convinced to vote. You know, I want people who have actual responsibility or feel an actual responsibility to vote and know the issues. Uh, I want them voting. I don't want anybody to, you know, have to twist their arm to vote. I don't want them out there, please don't go vote yeah we'll vote for food i can see yeah. some holding the sign right now well i appreciate you taking that detour um I, i'd love to go back to 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 james blanchard though because you know i'm i'm a, a bit on the outside looking in but james blanchard seems to be this kind of unsung hero in the gold community if i mean maybe if you're if you're kind of deep into the gold community and industry you know him. But if you're not, you, you, you may have never heard of him. But it, it seems like he was quite a, you know, important figure in the history of gold, at least in the United States. Can you give kind of like an overview of, of I know you started to, but, but maybe just give the audience an overview of who he was, you know, what his contributions were to, to you know, gold and, and, yeah. and, and the gold community? He may be the most important uh, figure in modern history in relates, uh, as it relates to gold. He wasn't the only person um, who was advocating and lobbying for the return of the right of gold ownership, but he was one of the key people, if not the most important person, and certainly the one that did uh, you know, the most on the ground. He, uh, he went around the country um, having press conferences that were uh, announced to the uh, uh, the Treasury Department at every stop. And he had a two ounce bar of gold that he would brandish at every investment, at every press conference and say, why is this illegal to own? I own this. This is illegal. Please come arrest me. And they never they never took the bait and never did arresting, um, unfortunately. But he would, you know, he led protests on the uh, Treasury steps in Washington. He hired, famously hired a biplane to tow a banner that said legalized gold over Nixon's second inauguration, um, which today they would throw you in Guantanamo Bay for that, you know, but back then, you know, they just sortied a few fires. And, and anybody who posted about it on Facebook, Facebook would put this little sticker on there that says, you know, PolitiFact determines that this is, this is bullshit. Yeah. And for the real gold story, you know, click here, yeah, yeah, 
that it, it, it was, he was, so, so he did, she was very important for that, for getting gold legalized. And I think also very important for starting the New Orleans Investment Conference, which is you can, you can ask anybody that's been there, it's, it's a really important thing in their lives and in the, uh, the history of investing in the future, I believe. But Jim was the most charismatic individual I ever met. Uh, he was just an amazing guy. He would roll into any room and uh, dominate it. Uh, not that he would dominate it in terms of, of, you know, wanting to dominate in terms of his personality, but everybody knew he was there. His energy level, his enthusiasm were uh, just unbounded. I mean, the guy went everywhere from the North to the South Pole, all around the world, behind the iron and bamboo curtains um, mm -hmm. in a wheelchair. And I hauled, him, I hauled him through some of those areas myself and a number of us other people on, uh, who were close friends of his helped do that. Um, but he was just really just as such an inspirational person. He, would, he could convince you to, um, to run through a brick wall. And you know, so many times I would get in a, a cab with him and there'd be an immigrant cab driver and he would ask them about where they were from, how were the politics and everything else. Um, and, uh, you know, when we would get out of the cab and the cab driver would be wearing Jim's tie around his head, like, um, you know, <laughs> and yelling, go freedom, go freedom, go America, <laughs> all this stuff. And it, it was just amazing, his impact on people. Um, no, incredible individual. And, um, you know, very sad that he is, gone and what we do every day here is just try to burnish and extend that legacy right that's great um so yeah maybe maybe now's a good time to transition into you know i guess going through what you would describe as the highlight reel for the new orleans investment conference we mentioned you've you've had some incredible speakers and and you you've already named some of those but i'm, I'm curious as someone who's been doing it for as long as you have are there any particularly memorable conferences that come to mind? Any ones that stand out? Um, yeah, I, you know, the e that's easy for me. You know, I, very, I was very fortunate to meet a lot of these people, a lot of these, you know, giants of recent history, at least. But the, the one that really stands out for me is Margaret Thatcher. Um, she was wow. the deal. You know, we had a lot of these people, and I won't go into names, but a lot of of uh, the celebrities du jour, either you know, military generals, senators, um, past presidents, you know, secretaries of state and all that, but they would be basically empty suits. They got their check, gave their rousing speech and left and didn't really uh, project their personality or even talk to anybody who was you know, below their stature. Um, but Margaret Thatcher was definitely the real deal. We were very fortunate to have a lunch that Jim had organized. Uh, and my wife and I were at one side of Margaret Thatcher at the, near the head of the table. She was at the head of the table and Jim and his wife were opposite us. And then we had a bunch of luminaries down, uh, big, big name speakers, you know, who were also at the table, probably another eight or so. And some really big names. And uh, Margaret Thatcher realized at the time that my wife and I's uh, two children were the same ages as her grandchildren. So she started talking to us about young children and her grandkids and our kids. And for about 20 minutes, she's just talking to my wife and I in 
you know, to the, uh, it, you know, ignoring anybody else at the table, all these other luminaries. Well, eventually, uh, Jim Rogers, further down the table, at the other end of the table, has had enough of this. So Jim um, pipes up and it says, Lady Thatcher, uh, what, you know, why didn't you join uh, the Euro? And so Lady Thatcher turns from talking to us, slowly looks down and gives Jim basically her pat answer, political answer, you know, and then she turns back to us to talk, continue talking about her grandkids. Well, Jim's a pugnacious guy, as you probably know, and he ain't going to take that for nothing. So, so Jim says something like, um, well, we've all heard that. What's your real view? And uh, that she slowly, slowly turns and looks at him and nobody at the table that was there can remember what she said, but she rhetorically sliced him to ribbons without raising her voice, just tore him to pieces, stopped, then turned right back to us and continued in mid-sentence talking about her grandkids. And everybody was just shocked. And I've never seen Jim Rogers speechless before or since. Um, it was just absolutely amazing, but that's what she was. And she was just so personable. And you think about her, and she's depicted as this iron lady, but she was just so gracious. Um, and one of those people who was willing to talk to anyone, didn't matter their place or station in life, she talked to everybody as if they were an equal. That's, that's amazing. And of course, she's famous for that quote where she said, um, having power is like being a lady, if you have to say it. You know, you, you're, you're not, not one. You're not one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you saw both power and she was a lady um, yeah. first class. That's cool. She she was. She was amazing. She really was. Very eloquent, very personable, um, and really stands out, you know, among the crowd. What was what was her talk? Like what 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 did she present on it though? Uh, trying to think it's actually online people can go to our website and, okay. and uh and get it but she did she had a few uh little quips in there the, the most important things about it uh, our talk were when she was talking about reagan and had a few little quips like yeah i was telling ronnie don't go wobbly and uh this sort of thing and uh that that was the best part of it it was ever whatever the issues of the day were i would get and of course you reminisces about the Falklands and, and all of that. I remember the Falklands as a ninth grader. It just seemed bizarre that this little third world country, Argentina, would be messing with the yeah. UK. Um, but as a ninth grader, I mean, you don't really get it. Yeah, and it was a, a time of the decline of the British Empire, and, and it was the British Empire partly, well, primarily because of Thatcher's influence being rejuvenated as, you know, the denationalization of key industries and everything. And it was a, their last great swipe at being a world power once again. Um, and they were able to do it. Um, but there was a lot of determination. I mean, it, it was her iron will that really drove that. Yeah, you kind of look at the situation there today and say, is that somebody like that even possible? Would they ever rise to any degree of prominence um, given the political situation there or here, for that matter, will we ever see another Reagan here? Yeah, and you know, I, I 
I don't know if we'll ever see another Reagan <clears throat> or Thatcher or somebody that has that power of personality in the right way. I mean, we see some of these people like Trump that have a power of personality, and I think it's possible to get people behind you. But it's also scary when somebody has that ability, um, you know, and they don't use that power or that power of persuasion for good. Um, you know, and politics is so screwed up. And even in, you know, one of the key things that I'm talking about in investments, if, if you look at some of the, the people of that era, if you look at Paul Volcker, you know, is Jay Powell a Paul Volcker? Um, he's certainly trying to be right now. But, you know, my, my big argument now is that it does, it's, it's a moot point. You know, it's, it's irrelevant because he doesn't have the tools that Volcker has. So he's, you know, at some point he's going to have to take a knee in the fight against inflation because there's nothing he can do with the debt this high. You know, it reminds me of um, that Elizabeth Holmes, who was the CEO of um, Theranos. Yeah. That was committing fraud. She was so consciously trying to be Steve Jobs with the black turtleneck and all that. I'm trying to remember who was it that some reporter or somebody said, are you the next so-and-so? And he was kind of surprised at the question. He turned around and said, no, I'm the first, whatever his name was. Yeah. Like, if you're really sitting here thinking, I'm going to be the next Paul Volcker, Paul Volcker wasn't sitting there thinking he's going to be the next Secretary Connolly or Morgan Dow or whoever. He was. Uh, Trying to be Paul Volcker. He was, you know, he was trying to do what he thought was was the right thing, and, um, you know, where you know let history sort it out later, uh, you know, kind of thing. Um, so um, I was going to say, I think one of the things that everybody's going to be keen to hear about is what do you think are the key or the top either investment themes of where we're at right now, or what do you think would be the top investment themes coming up in the New Orleans conference next month? Yeah, I, I think there's only one theme and, and it's the only thing that drives the markets. It's the only thing that's been driving the market, really the markets since 2008, and that's Federal Reserve policy. Um, and everything is dependent on that. You know, the price of gold is uh, set every day in New York by, Wall Street traders and algorithms, and they have a very simple formula. It's anything that points toward a more hawkish Fed is bad for stocks and it's bad for gold. It's bad for bad for anything that's been driven by this central bank liquidity uh, as it has been for the last dozen years or so and to a lesser degree even before that. So that's why you have a, uh, you know, red hot inflation numbers come out and gold gets sold off along with everything else, because that means the Fed is going to raise rates and they never take it to the next logical step. Um, but I think in, you know, this is my personal view that in the next really few weeks, if, if not few months, um, there's going to be a big reckoning coming up because the debt's so large that the Fed is not going to be able to continue hiking rates. And uh, that's going to be a really big issue. It's already, the federal interest payments are already at $600 billion on an annual basis. And that's the highest level in history. And the, the trend line is pointed straight for the sky. And those are quarterly numbers. They compiled quarterly, reported quarterly. So they don't 
we're looking at the second quarter for those numbers. We don't have the third quarter yet, which will include the effects of all of the Fed's most aggressive rate hikes. Um, and so even small rate hikes are tremendously uh, impactful to the bottom line interest costs, debt service costs, because the debt is so high. The debt right now is four times larger than it was in 2008, over four times larger. And so, and we're increasing rates right now at a vast multiple, four or five times the rate that we were in 2015. So the impact is going to be, you know, just tremendous. It's going to be like a, a, a steam train hitting you in a tunnel. There's going to be no way to, nowhere to hide. And it's coming up very soon that we're going to get those numbers reported. I think that's going to be a political and fiscal barrier to the Fed uh, doing much more on the interest rate front. And the end result of that is we're going to have high inflation and the Fed essentially being proven powerless to do anything about it. That's an environment that's not bullish, unlike the, all the previous environments. It's not bullish for, for equities, it's not bullish for bonds, but it is bullish for precious metals. And if you have even a small fraction of the investing public out there of those investable funds, realizing that and being allocated into precious metals, uh, the impact, you know, because the metals are such a small market, the impact, I, it will, if that happens, the impact would be um, stupendous. But I just happens. tweeted earlier today, I said, when will the three months to 10 year treasury spread invert? Yeah. <laughs> I made it as a poll just to be kind of funny and perverse about it. And yeah. I said, um, tomorrow, choice A, soon enough, choice B, um, choice C was, um, uh, when the Fed, um, when the Fed did something, uh, no, I don't remember. I don't tweet anymore. The choice D was never, and we'll see what because uh, it's pretty close. It's I think fourteen basis points right now. Um, you said tomorrow, soon enough, at the next Fed hike or never. That's right. Thanks okay. for uh, for following. Me. See what it comes up as. Uh, so what's winning right now? Uh, right now, soon enough at 41%. Now, <laughs> never uh, tomorrow is in trailing in uh, fourth place, and never is at 17%. Yeah, it, it's pretty close. And, and of course, the inversion is another. I mean, there's the interest expense to the government. Of course, there's also the interest expense to all the zombies and companies that aren't quite, weren't quite so cl close to, were close to being zombies, but not quite zombies. As the interest expense goes up, then all these companies are dragged in to where they can't even afford their uh, interest payments. Which and is going to deepen a recession, which is going to reduce tax revenues. Which right, is so the deficit tax. increases. But the other thing is the inversion, because the banks are all in the game of borrow short to lend long. So now if they're borrowing at a higher rate and lending at a lower rate, then they're getting crushed. Right. You know, and so uh, if if you want them to have a healthy economy, you know, impairing that. So actually, the banks get crushed two ways. One is their cash flow is impaired because their cost of funding goes up immediately. The long term assets they own, um, you know, aren't aren't changing very much. Except they're losing the the price of the asset is going down. So yeah. it's actually hitting them in the balance sheet as well as the income statement. Yeah. Uh, and if you want a healthy economy, you know, 
probably not the best way to go about that is to you know cause the banks to be impaired. Um, yeah. And um, how long do, does the Fed continue to play at this before they cry uncle is uh, yeah. anybody's yeah. guess. There's really three legs to this that that three three factors that could convince the Fed to to at least stop, and I think that would be sufficiently bullish for the precious metals, much less pivot, but at least stop. And one is the impact on the economy. One is the impact on the financial markets. Uh, Wall Street basically tell them, telling them to stop. And of course, Powell's been able to ignore that so far. Uh, and the other one is just the cost of servicing the debt. Uh, soaring to the level where, you know, already it's about to dwarf defense spending. Uh, and then you have the rest of the entitlements. It's going to hit, I think, a trillion dollars a year, which was kind of a magical big number that I think will have some political sway out there. Um, it's going to hit that pretty soon. But think about this. If we're paying a trillion dollars, if we're running a trillion dollar deficit right now, and you add on to that a trillion dollars in debt service expense, so now you're running close to you know, a two trillion dollar deficit without increasing spending. You're just paying that 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 added interest costs on the federal debt. How are you going to pay that in a deficit situation? You're going to borrow more. So you're going to you're going to borrow more to pay the interest on the debt you already have. So then you're going to create more debt that you have to pay interest on. So what are you going to do? You're going to borrow more. So it's a classic debt spiral. The debt spiral, exactly. That's it. That would that would crater any kind of a private enterprise almost immediately. But obviously, sovereigns don't play by the same rules, and especially a sovereign that has the world's reserve currency doesn't play by the rules. So it can extend this process a lot longer. And uh, so that's one argument. But the fact is, this is a 60-year-old process since the guns and butter of the 1960s. And if you look at it, going back that far, you see that the Fed has lowered interest rates every instance of this, meaning any kind of a economic hiccup since the 1970s, and it's never been able to raise them again. So you've always gone progressively lower until you reach zero. And you know you have to bring out all these other tools, quantitative easing, all the acronyms like TARP and everything else. So you know things are happening more quickly now, like when the water gets drained out of a tub and it's going around the, the drain, it goes much more quickly. I think we're in the end game of this multi-decadal process of the uh, basically the um, long, slow default in the dollar and the debt. And, um, and we're, we're in that end game, whether it's going to be, you know, another 10 or 20 years, whether it's going to be this cycle that does it or the next and the next, it's going to play out much more quickly now, I think. Um, that's why I think this is a really a, a crucial time. So that's the reason for buying gold right there. Forget yeah. the, the bet on its price. If the price can go up next week, well, maybe. But if you own gold, you don't own the Fed's liability. Yeah, and, and you know, Keith, that there's a lot of smart people out there in on, on the uh, internet, on, on financial Twitter and the like, and we get in arguments all the time on a daily basis of a lot of them. A lot of people out there, really smart, great arguments, plotting the exact path of events going forward and what's going to happen. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm not smart enough to figure all that out. And frankly, I don't think anybody is. It's just too many variables. 
but the one thing we can be confident in is you're going to want to own gold and silver going into what's ahead. I was going to say, I always like to trot out the Yogi Berra joke. Um, he says uh, predictions are hard, especially about the future. Yeah, um, exactly. What's the exact timing? What's the exact order in which, you know, this bank is going to do this and then that's going to fail. And then, you know, very hard to, to say, but we can see the general shape of it, which is, uh, so I was at um, the Cato Institute um, Monetary Conference. This would have been maybe 2014. Mm -hmm. And um, it struck me that speaker after speaker after speaker, so they had some current Fed governors, they had some ex-Fed governors or other high Fed officials. They had uh, John Taylor, I was the Taylor Rule of um, uh, Stanford. They had uh, all these people that one after the other, uh, they all have the same monetarist playbook, which is, you know, purporting to say what the right interest rate that the Fed should impose. Um, largely Taylor rule at that time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, speaker after speaker was puzzled and they said, I don't really know why Chairman Bernanke hasn't, you know, raised rates. And um, at that time, I was still kind of working on the ideas for my, what became my theory of interest in prices. And one of the ideas I was kind of stuck on was this analogy of a black hole and you're in the spaceship and you can, I'm assuming you have a big enough rocket on the back you know, you can zip in and out and do all these things as long as you don't get inside the event horizon. Yeah. Which is this radius that's way outside. I mean, the black hole is this little point. The event horizon is something like, you know, half a light year, to, it's huge. It's a lot bigger than, than most people would think. As long as you don't get inside that, you know, you're fine. You can zing it out. But if you're falling, 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 and you get inside the event horizon, then you're going to the singularity of 10, you're going to zero. Mm -hmm. And then it clicked for me because I was thinking like, the interest rate keeps going down. Um, and here's an analogy that if you grew up in New Orleans, you may not necessarily appreciate this, but I grew up in um, upstate New York where we had plenty of snow on the ground and plenty of hills. And um, you know, every, every young boy of six or eight years old has to try this at least once. You take the snowball, because you've seen it in cartoons, movies, and then you start pushing it. And then if the snow is kind of that spring snow, which is kind of sticky and wet, it will accumulate on the snowball and then you're pushing it down the hill and you know you're first it's kind of frictional and you're tearing up all the snow from sort of dead grass under it and then you get to that point usually the hill is getting steeper at that point and the snowball is picking up mass exponentially there's a point at which um you know, I, I i call it the oh shit moment yeah that every every eight-year-old boy has to have myself included and um, at that point, the things, I mean, you can kind of run with it for quite a while and hover your hands over it and pretend, but it's, it's gotten away from you. And the only, you know, only two things are going to govern its, you know, its fate, which is gravity and the house or the car or whatever's at the bottom of the hill. And, um, you know, it, 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 the, th the thing I was struggling with was that is this an analogy for the interest rate been falling since, you know, 1981? Um, is this the analogy for it? And then when speaker, it was like three or four speakers in a row, four or five speakers, it was a lot. We're all just puzzled. Why, you know, Bernanke has the same playbook. Why hasn't he raised rates? It was like, ding, because he can't, because he's trapped. And this is the, this is the direction of the shoot. It goes down, it does not go up. Um, up was 1947 to 1981. It cannot 
you know, you can't go back and be Volker at this point for, for so many reasons, and that's one of them. And um, that Bernanke probably realized he couldn't, but didn't necessarily trust even these relatively high officials uh, with, you know, he didn't include them in his council. They're clearly puzzled. I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't think they were lying. I don't think they were politicians in that instant. I think they were just genuinely, why, why isn't he doing it? I don't know. And they had their charts, the Taylor rule, you know, what the interest rate should have been and six months ago, they should have raised by 50 bps or whatever they're saying. And, um, you know, the, the question that I have is, okay, they tried to hike rates in 2005 and that caused, or I shouldn't say caused, I think it was baked in the cake, but precipitated the crisis of 08. Mm -hmm. Well, we've now gone on this, you know, aggressive and getting aggressiver rate hiking binge what is going to come out of this and how bad will it be and you know how many backroom deals will there be where they take um what was his name the uh the ceo of bank of america at the time uh, hank paulson summons him to washington dc uh friday evening mm -hmm. and so bank of america was in the process of acquiring merrill lynch in the fall of 2008 and um discovered there was a material adverse change. And they said, okay, the deal was off. Of course, there was a material adverse change. Everything was materially adversely changing during that you know, couple of month period. And so um, Hank Paulson summons him to a basement meeting in Washington, D.C. Friday evening. And by Sunday, and uh, you know, I was joking, he made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by, my, by Sunday morning, um, you know, that guy, what was his name? Um, CEO of, of uh, Bank of America was on uh, oh, on TV. Tip Sorry, of my, tip of my tongue, I can't remember. Um, was on was on uh, you know on the air on Sunday saying the deal's back on, and uh, Hank Paulson's Treasury had twisted his arm, and um, you know nobody's going to know what he what he's wrapped around. Ken Lewis. Ken Lewis. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, how many stories are going to come out of this one? My gut feeling, I'm interested in your take on this too, is that that can still has a good number of kicks left in it. That yes, we're in the end game, but the end game has, has longer to play out. It's not tomorrow or next week or next month. I, my view is, is, yeah, I could. I've gotten in heated discussions with Peter Schiff about this, who thinks the next one's the big one, the death of the dollar. And I, I just don't know. I, they successfully kicked the can, but what hits me is that things are moving much more quickly right now, which they do, you know, as these processes play out. Uh, you look at 2008 and you look at what they did in terms of quantitative easing and lowering interest rates, and they took four to five years to do that. Um, in the uh, pandemic, in March of, of 2020, they did all of that that they took four to five years to do. They did it in four to five days. In some cases, four to five hours. So everything happened much more quickly. And not only that, they did much more than they did before. So, you know, the, the thing, the way I look at it very generally is the next crisis, they are, because the markets aren't addicted to easy money, they're addicted to ever easier money because the patient yes. has developed such a tolerance to the drug, they're going to have to do that much more of a dosage. So whatever they did, 
you know, in March of 2020, they're going to have to do many more times the next time. So at what point, and this is not just the dollar, this is all fiat currencies. At what point do these fiat currencies lose credibility because the markets will look ahead and say, not only are we having these crises much more frequently, but we're doing God awful amounts more in each crisis. So this is having a real world effect on what is that currency? What is that unit of currency worth when it is going to be multiplied uh, by the next crisis? That's going to come again much more quickly. So people at some point will look at not so much the value of that paper, which is being eroded, and they know it's going to be eroded. You know, gold rises, gold is not a, an inflation hedge. It, it doesn't track the CPI, doesn't attract prices in any way. And you can tell that by obviously looking at the chart. But if you look at that chart, you see these jaggered jumps every now and then where it really rises. And what that is, it's a barometer of people's freaking out. It's a freak out barometer measure or hedge. When people really start to worry about the value of their currency next week, what is that going to be worth? Then that's when people go into gold. So it makes up for that lost time. It kind of bebops along, doesn't do much. Then when things get really bad, everybody rushes into it and it even overshoots equilibrium. So I think we're coming into a point where we're at the end of this multi-decadal cycle of the rapid depreciation and loss of credibility in fiat currencies because of this deficit spending and ever easier money policies. And at the end of that cycle, we are going to get to something that will very much resemble the 1970s when um, people are really looking to gold and silver as that last bastion of value. And I think that's probably going to be involved in the end game. Uh, you know, what the great reset is going to be. It would be very easy to, as you know, a number of people have shown, to just back the dollar 20% level that the current uh, level of M2, you know, that would imply a $10,000 gold price. That's not out of the realm of possibility. And, and interestingly, it's also, you know, what else are you going to value against? You know, if you attach the dollar to any other commodity or whatever, because there are so many dollars out there, it would entail really, um, you know, revaluing that other commodity. Gold is the only commodity out there that you could change its price from $1,700 to $10,000 tomorrow, and it would not affect any industry wouldn't affect the end prices of anything except the jewelry sitting on the shelf right now. And that's, that's, that's a very underappreciated historical point. That is when people turn to hoarding money, good thing that money isn't edible because if, if food were money, then the need to hoard money would mean that the marginal consumer is going to starve to death. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, if that happens to money, that doesn't change. Um, you know, the availability of food, for example. I'd love to continue that conversation, maybe face-to-face -face in uh, New Orleans, um, or maybe we'll get you back on the show. Yeah, would love um, to, be fine. But we gotta, we gotta wrap it here because, believe it or not, we've gone over an hour. We could go on forever, Keith. <laughs>
time time flies when you're having fun and this has been yeah. an yeah. awesome conversation thank you so much for coming on i look forward to seeing you face to face next month i i will be there you know that i would just encourage all of our listeners to go to uh the link which i'm sure you will put up to look at our list of speakers because it it really is just an incredible list of speakers that we have this this year um and of course the the issues they'll be discussing have never been more important that is for sure absolutely yeah we'll provide links and resources in the show notes want to echo keith's thanks thank you so much brian this was great wonderful to be here thanks guys this episode was brought to you by monetary metals Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions. And our gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold using and gold producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.